You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Uh, Check us out online and please sign up for our free newsletter at perchperspectives.com. Uh, joining me on the podcast this week, I'm super excited to welcome Dr. Kamran Bukhari. Kamran and I have known each other for over a decade now and have been colleagues in the past. He's currently the founding director at the Center for Global Policy, where he heads the Governance and Muslim Majority States program. Kamran also teaches courses on global studies in Central Asia at the U.S. Department of State's Foreign Service Institute. And he has a bunch of other titles as well that I won't go into. I'll just say that I was really excited to have this conversation with Kamran roughly about six weeks ago, and a lot of it is still highly relevant now. Uh, Kamran is an incredibly empathetic and incredibly incisive analyst dealing with global issues and especially global issues and how they intersect with the Muslim world. So thank you so much, Kamran, for coming on. A reminder, please follow us, leave comments, rate us on whatever streaming platform you're listening on. You can also email us with any thoughts you have about the podcast at info at perchperspectives.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you out there. The Center for Global Policy is um, is an experiment. It's uh, it's something that um, evolved out of two sort of pursuits. Uh, my own pursuit, um, first of all, you know, it was myself and my co-author Fareed Senzai, who's a professor of political science uh, at Santa Clara University in the Bay Area. He's the founder, though he's no longer with the company anymore. He's moved on. Um, he wanted to have a think tank. It was his desire to see a think tank in Washington that focuses on, um, you know, the the U.S. foreign policy towards the Muslim world. I was, because I'd left Stratford and, uh, you know, I was at Geopolitical Futures, George Friedman's, uh, uh, you know, subsequent organization, uh, I was still trying to see, you know, where my career would take me after Stratford, because as you know, the GPF, um, uh, is a startup. And so I, I, I was still sort of thinking and looking around and Fareed came to me and said, you know, I want to do this. And I know that you do a lot of policy analysis. Um, and so can, can we do something together? And so the center for global policy for me was how do I take my lessons or my, the tradecraft that I learned at Stratford, which, you know, is called geopolitical studies, intelligence analysis, how do I take all of that and apply it into the policy domain? Uh, you know, because I saw that one of the things that was, uh, you know, just jumped at me when 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 uh, Fareed came to me, this was in mid-2015. And uh, he said that, you know, I want to do this. And I said, hmm, you know what? This may actually work because uh, most think tanks in Washington are advocacy groups. Uh, based on their ideological point of view, they're either you know conservative, liberal, libertarian, um, you know, and, and and there's a whole gamut of it uh, of, of those organizations. But each one of them um, pursues research, policy research, and 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 advises the United States government and its various agencies and departments based on that perspective. So, in other words, if you, for example, if you um, if you look at Syria. And you say, okay, so what's Brookings' perspective on Syria? So in, in to, to simplify this, and I know it's far more nuanced, and I, I don't want to take away credit from people at Brookings, but their bottom line is that, you know, 
Um, on Syria, uh, we should have overthrown Assad a long time ago, and we should have supported the rebels. The fact that we did not support the rebels is why we are in the situation that we are in. And so already there is an a priori uh, outcome. There, there is. They already know where they want to go, and then all the research is around that, and it's packaged to sort of further, you know, do advocacy, lobby, and CGP. I didn't want to do that, and I wanted to use, you know, the uh, analysis and forecasting, and add a policy component to it, and say, okay, how can we do? How can we first do research? How can we bring the social scientific method back into the think tank arena, and do great research? Because as you know, at Stratford and at Geopolitical Futures, uh, we stopped short of prescription. We would analyze, we, you know, we would highlight the geopolitically significant developments from the rest of the noise for our clients, but then we would analyze and we would provide a forecast and that was the end of what we would do by and large. Um, here, I wanted to go a step further. And I said, if we can follow the rigor and the discipline of geopolitics and intelligence analysis, then we can offer a far better product uh, in terms of policy recommendations, uh, not policy advocacy. So I distinguish between policy advocacy and what we do at CGP. And you know, for a lack of good term, we've been calling it analysis-driven policy recommendations. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. in that sense, you're really you're really trying to be a think tank. Um, in the literal sense of the term, you're you're trying to give people thoughts and apply those thoughts within an analytical framework um, to give people options for what they can do. But it's it's funny as you were talking. I mean, it, it strikes me. I mean, we're we're going to have a lot of veterans of kind of the Stratfor GPF uh, methodology, if you will, and that geopolitical thinking. And and I guess one of the things that I want to ask you, based on what you were just saying, is that both of us have kind of gone in in different directions from that. You have obviously decided to apply what you learned at Stratfor and GPF to the policy world and trying to improve policy making decisions. I'm trying to apply some of those lessons in international business and in trying to consult NGOs and companies on ways that they can mitigate risk and reduce uncertainty in some of their operations. But it seems to me embedded with what you say that, that you're still you've still sort of drank the geopolitics Kool-Aid, if you will. I've sort of distanced myself from geopolitics. And I think of geopolitics right now as one tool in a toolkit of many. And I've actually sort of identified the fact that if you rely too much on geopolitics, it actually is that sort of exact a priori assumption thing that you were talking about with Brookings. If you think everything in the world is geopolitical, then every solution, every policy, every business plan that you're going to suggest is also going to be geopolitical. And there are factors in the world that are not geopolitical. I mean, right now we're in a time of more zero-sum competition and, you know, we've got the U.S.-China trade war and you've got Russia expanding and Turkey expanding. All these things are happening that are making geopolitics more real. But if you had used geopolitics to try and understand the period from about, I don't know, the fall of the Soviet Union in 91 to about the election of Donald Trump in 2016, uh, the geopolitics framework would actually probably spit out results to you that wouldn't quite make sense. I think that's one of the reasons at Stratfor and at GPF, we got caught off guard by some of the things that happened in the Muslim world, like the rise of ISIS and and the Syrian civil war, all these other things. So how how are you? Uh, that, that's a rambling question, but I guess what I what I want to ask you is how have you changed um, geopolitics as a methodology for yourself and what you apply at CGP? How are you 
teaching that methodology at CGP and what are the limits to that methodology, if any, or are you just still all in on it and you think it's uh, it's the perfect way for understanding international affairs? Well, that's a great question. So, um, no, we are, are not sticking to um, what you and I learned at Stratfor and NGPF. We have to modify it because at the end of the day, paradigms, um, methods of analysis are all rational constructions. They, they're they as good as the ones uh, that make them or create them. And so th- these are evolving things that need to continue to evolve. Um, I'm the only one in CGP who comes from that universe. Um, my None of my colleagues come from that universe except for perhaps uh, our deputy director for non-state actors and geopolitics program. His name is Faisal Itani. And he worked for IHS James, and he was in the risk analysis business. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, he joined us from the Atlantic Council. But uh, he and I see a lot of, you know, things in, uh, you know, we share a lot of uh, common denominators in terms of analysis and, and the way to analyze things. But you're right. No, um, I'm I'm more looking at, you know, applied geopolitics. How can we apply the principles of geopolitics to understanding? The, poli- the what is wrong with policy and how can we come up with better policy recommendations? Uh, we also look at, uh, you know, the how do you analyze? How do you, how do you think about certain things? And, uh, you know, obviously geopolitics is, is, a, is a strategic framework. Uh, you also need, you know, what is called intelligence analysis, which is not geopolitical necessarily. Uh, if you remember, uh, you know the um, what used to be called the security team or or the tactical team at at, at Stratfor and G, uh, GPF. Well, we didn't have one at GPF, but at Stratfor, um, they didn't come from the geopolitics uh, school of thought, and we, there was also that healthy tension between the two shops, the the geopolitical shop and and the security shop, and 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 at some point, you know, it, it, they complemented each other. So in that spirit, what we're doing is we, we have colleagues who bring in a wealth of knowledge. There are area studies experts. There are people who, are, who have done field work. Uh, there are other ways of looking at things. Um, one of my colleagues, Hassan Hassan, who is the director of our non-state actors and geopolitics program, is a journalist. He comes from the journalism world. Um, uh, we have uh, Azim Ibrahim, uh, who wrote the book on, on, the, on the Rohingya. And uh, he comes from a completely different universe of, uh, you know, his own research as a researcher. You know, he comes out of academia, you know, had fellowships at Harvard and Yale. So and, and, you know, as the team grows, different people are joining us. Some people are, you know, we just had a senior fellow. Uh, his, his name is Eamon Jawad Tamimi. He is someone who's just, uh, you know, studied on the ground, uh, you know, jihadist groups. He, he's uh, he, he's, he's a, you know Arabic speaker. He does not know much about geopolitics. He does not know anything about intelligence analysis. He's just been a researcher on the ground uh, in in the Middle East, and you know he continues to what do what maybe anthropologists would call ethnographic work. So there are different ways of of uh, I agree with you of looking at the world, but I think that geopolitics. Um, it offers a strategic framework of thinking and improving upon that thinking. I mean, if you and I are very familiar with the term net assessment. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I've had a lot of time to look at the concept of net assessment 
after I left uh, GPF. And, and I realized that net assessment as understood by, by George Friedman was not the way Andrew Marshall conceived of it, who, who, who was the founder of the Office of Net Assessments at the Pentagon and ran it for 40 some years. And I, I think it, you know, George was uh, one of his students at some point. And, and I'm, I, I'm taking what George Friedman you know, basically taught as uh, net assessment and saying, you know, how can, you know, it doesn't apply in the way that I need it. And so obviously there's a need to modify. I guess what I'm going on and on about is that um, any concept is a living document. It has to evolve. If it doesn't, then it becomes uh, sterile and, and useless and, you know, nobody talks about it anymore. And, and for some of our listeners, Andy Marshall is sort of the gold standard uh, in the at least the American geopolitical community. Uh, he passed away, I guess, in the last year. Um, he, he was a stalwart in sort of policy planning and U.S. foreign policy for decades. He was kind of respectfully and jokingly referred to as the Yoda of American strategic policy in, in a sense. So when Kamran is talking about net assessments, he's talking about one of the ways that Andy Marshall tried to approach understanding any conflict, where if you can understand the center of gravity, if you can understand the imperatives con and constraints of both sides and compare them, you can get a net assessment. You can get, you know, you, you sort of net the things out and you can assess where the conflict is going to go from there. But I want to pick up on what you said, Kamran, because um, it, it kind of takes me back to, I mentioned this to you before we came on this podcast, which is that I was reminded, you know, the first time we met, you and I were both in the process of finishing up degrees, even while we were also working at Stratfor and we met up for, for drinks in a pub in London. And we talked a lot about Islam and religion and, you know, my Judaism and identity and all these other things. And what you're saying about geopolitics really, I think, hits on some of those things that sparked our friendship those many years ago. Um, and, and I'll say it like this geopolitics like a nationalism or like a liberalism is a it's an idea and a concept that comes out of 19th century europe it literally the first time somebody uses that word geopolitics it's a swedish guy who was looking across um who's looking into europe and seeing the rise of germany and trying to figure out how sweden is going to behave so that it can take advantage of or protect itself from things that are happening on the european continent and he's really the first person to think of geopolitics in a sort of, a, of a, in a disciplinary way and try to apply some things going forward. Um, the, the question I want to put to you is, does geopolitics work from a Muslim perspective? Or you, know, you sort of talked about how the, the person who is in control of the idea or who is in control of the tool sometimes defines the results you're going to get, right? Um, I sometimes think that when um, non-European or non-Western countries um, think through geopolitics, they're actually using a tool that was developed with a European concept of the nation state in mind, and it doesn't always map on perfectly. I think you see this especially in the way, for example, China approaches strategic thinking. They don't call it geopolitics. They have their own robust strategic tradition, and they approach international politics in a different way and in a way that is sometimes hard for folks who are steeped in geopolitics or realism or all these other concepts that we use in American foreign policy to understand. So you kind of straddle both those worlds. You're deeply Muslim. You, your background, your, your family background is Pakistan and that part of Central Asia and that part of the world. But you also have a degree from a university in, from a university in England. You've lived in Canada. You've lived in the United States. 
how do you deal with um, sort of a Muslim approach to geopolitics or is, or is geopolitics for you just this objective thing that is universally true and it, there's a limit to how much the beholder of the tool can actually infuse it with their own worldview? So I think that it is the it is a universal thing. Um, I think that geopolitics, uh, regardless of its origins, um, someone has to make something. You know, someone comes up with, uh, you know, every idea that we consume, and obviously that individual or that group, that vanguard, uh, shapes that idea in keeping with their. Uh, social, political, economic context. So there's no uh, disputing that. So nationalism, uh, modern understanding of democracy, capitalism, um, these are all products. I mean, everything that we consume intellectually uh, has come out of Europe. Uh, and so uh, there's no, you know, no, there's no, there, that is a reality that we have to deal with. But I think that having, you know, immersed myself in sort of the first academic study of, of all these concepts and then having worked on, you know, their, uh, their physical manifestations in, in, around the world in a professional capacity, I realized that the, there is something universal. Uh, it will emerge in different contexts. I wrote a book uh, on, uh, you know, democratization in, in, in the context of the Muslim world. Uh, for the longest time, uh, you know, even when I wrote the book in 2013, uh, people were saying there is something called an Islamic democracy. And I, I basically challenged that. And I said, well, uh, you know, that's just sort of lumping, you know, the adjective Islamic and using it as a prefix on democracy. And beyond that, there's not much about it. And, you know, obviously you can superficially modify things, but uh, there's got to be more. And, and, and my book, uh, you know, I looked at seven different case studies of, of different Islamist movements and, 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 and national contexts uh, and said, I came to the conclusion that there, there's nothing called an Islamic democracy, just as there's nothing called a Christian democracy, although there are Christian Democrats who, you know, become a party in Europe and, 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 and they call themselves Christian Democrats. Um, but the fact of the matter is that's more identity politics than it has to do with reality. I think that there is something called democracy. And, and quickly, when I wrote that book, I, I, I moved away from the idea of, I said, democracy, it was clear to me democracy was too big of a thing for me to tackle. So I was not interested in the be and all of everything that democracy meant. I wanted to focus on, you know, is there a is there a possibility of democratization in the Muslim context in Muslim countries? And if so, what would it look like? And my conclusion was that there isn't there's going to be multiple forms of Muslim democracies. Some places may not democratize at all, given the way they're because it, it has nothing to do with culture. It has more to do with the fact that there's anarchy there, and there isn't a center of gravity that can sort of lead this move forward. Uh, so. To use that as an example to answer your question, um, I think that geopolitics uh, is universal. And what we're trying to do is not Muslim geopolitics, because um, if you think about it, I mean, geopolitics, as you know well, is sort of this word under which it's like an umbrella word. It, it, it encapsulates social life, cultural life, economic life, 
political conflict, armed conflict. It's, it's, it, 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 you can't talk about geopolitics in a grand sense without taking all of those things into consideration. So uh, I, I, if you apply, say, oh, we're, we're doing Muslim geopolitics, that's a huge part of the world that we, we would just not be truthful if we, if we claimed that we do Muslim geopolitics. So we look at, we use geopolitics as a tool to understand the Muslim world, but from a much more narrower lens. So hence the, you know, when in, in our, the way we've sort of described ourselves is we deal with issues that are the, at the intersection of American foreign policy and the geopolitics of the Muslim world. There'll be lots of issues in the, that fall under the rubric of the geopolitics of the Muslim world that have nothing to do with American foreign policy, and we just don't work on them because that's not what we're doing. We're, a, we're, we're in the business of doing policy recommendations for the United States government. That's our main client. That's our main audience. And so um, we are using geopolitics as a tool to understand the Muslim world uh, to the extent that it matters for American foreign policy. Sure, that makes sense. I'll push back a little bit here on um, that notion that geopolitics can, contains all those other things that you talked about, because th that's, for me, one of the reasons I've started to move away from geopolitics, because the moment you have to start doing that and this, the moment you have to start saying it's an umbrella term, that to me is actually an indictment of geopolitics as an explanatory concept. That actually means that geopolitics is not explaining some things. And like you said, that means you have to go and think about something from an economics framework or from a socioeconomic framework or from a cultural framework framework in order to understand it. If everybody actually behaved in terms of how geopolitical theory predicted they would behave, you and I would both be out of jobs because you could literally look at a map and you could define the imperatives and constraints and do the net assessment and it would all kind of come together and make sense. It's that very variability. It is those things that fight against uh, what a country's interests are on paper that actually, I think, create that variability in history. Because if you go throughout history, I mean, so there are so many examples of countries doing things uh, because they didn't understand something or because they understood something wrong or because there was some underlying worldview or national fear that moved their politicians into a particular direction. So I, I think that's one of the reasons that geopolitics as a concept has kind of become twisted in recent decades it's it's weird it's come into the zeitgeist and people talk about it and use it all the time now but it's almost like they use it too much and they think that if you can just hold everything up to that geopolitical ruler you're going to get everything that, that's why i said i think it's i think it's one tool it's one measuring stick in a toolbox how do you feel about that i uh, i agree with you in the general sense that it's one uh way of looking at the world it's one analytical tool um I, I think that I will also agree with you that it needs to be modified. It needs to it needs to evolve if it's going to remain relevant. It has to come, you know. Other ideas have to, uh, you know. It's it's a, it's sort of this sort of macro theory, if you will, that leaves out a lot of things that still have to be addressed. Um, I look at it as a, as as a very strategic paradigm. Uh, and but there's a lot happening on the ground level that is not that cannot just be seen from the thirty thousand foot view, and therefore you know uh, that's where I think we need to do better at uh, incorporating other discourses. So for example, um, I'm looking into gender. So we 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 haven't had a whole lot of bandwidth at, at CGP to do that, 
but nonetheless, we 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 try. Uh, one of our scholars does uh, senior fellows right now. She's at Georgetown, uh, Professor Aisha Kadifchi. She's from Turkey, and she does gender studies, and she tries to look at conflict from a gender point of view. Um, and we're trying to use gender as a lens to see what does that tell us about security issues? What does that tell us about uh, you know, how people move about. I mean, we have a program on displacement and migration, and, uh, you know, we're trying to use gender as a lens. Just to give you an example, uh, I think that one of the problems that uh, the policy community faces is that um, we, by and large, uh, the academic side of, of uh, you know, political science or international relations, international affairs, global studies is so much theorized. They're, they're so heavy into theory and there is an, there is an ideological aversion to, um, you know, working in the um, policy space as if some, somehow that's bad. So we're trying to get people to bring their skill sets into it. One, I mean, CGP uh, by design, uh, you know, is something that's small. And when you're small and if you have limited financial resources, you can't develop in-house expertise uh, where you hire your own experts. So what we're doing is we're going out and we're reaching out to different people uh, from different methodological disciplinary perspectives and getting them to produce their best work, uh, you know, work with us and produce content, uh, giving them a voice and bringing these different perspectives into the policy space. So if you look at, you know, take a uh, sort of a, a glance at our, at, at our publications, you know, whether it's the Weekly Navigator or our Policy Briefs or the podcasts um, or the people we invite for events, they're all very different. They're not from, uh, you know, the, the geopolitics school of thought. What we look at geopolitics is, is a broad framework, but it's not the be and all. We, we, it's a broad framework that, that, that sort of, uh, provide you with a strategic guidance, if you will, but that's not sufficient in of itself to predict, to analyze. And so I'm with you. We, we need all those different perspectives. And that's, in many ways, that's what we're trying to do here at CGP. I, I, don't, I think that uh, you and I are not off in terms of our current sort of career paths. We're, we're both doing, pursuing, we're going beyond geopolitics, uh, but I guess in different ways. Hashtag beyond geopolitics right there. Um, well, why don't we get down to brass tacks a little bit, Kamran? And I mean, I, I wanted to have you on the podcast for a number of reasons, but I think this conversation segues into something um, interesting, which is that so you're looking at the world from an American foreign policy lens. How do you interpret what's going on in the Muslim world from the point of view of American foreign policy and from the point of view of the kind of methodology that you've laid out here? And specifically, I want to ask you, what do you think the chances are in our lifetime that we see an attempt by a Muslim power, whether that's a fringe group like the Islamic State, whether that's some kind of neo-Ottoman empire that projects power throughout the Mediterranean? I, I don't know exactly what it is, but what do you think are the chances that in your or my lifetime, we are going to see an attempt and a successful attempt by a Muslim power to reestablish the caliphate? I, I, I just want to know what, how you respond to that question. Yeah, I think that... Um... The caliphate or the caliphate is, uh, as a political project, is a uh, is a fringe idea. 
uh, ISIS uh, was a fringe movement um, in the sense that it did not have a whole lot of support and it took advantage of a very chaotic and anarchic situation and was able to set up shop and erect the caliphate. And, but, you know, it didn't last long. And even at that point in time, it was, it was a proto-state. And, and so I, and the reason for that is because it's a fringe idea. Now, what is not a fringe idea is a romantic notion of the caliphate. If you ask any Muslim, uh, do you believe in the caliphate? They're not going to say no. But if you ask them to explain what is a caliphate, you'll get as many, you know, different views as there are, you know, uh, different schools of thought, if you will. Obviously, there'll be a segment of a population that believes in, in an X view of the caliphate and so on and so forth. But it's more of a romantic sort of, even I would argue, ahistorical. Uh, it is a longing for, for greatness, for, you know, re the return of the old glory. And it's, it's very romantic in that sense. So what that tells us is that, uh, and, and if you look at the history of the caliphate, uh, which is, I mean, when I say if you look at the history, I mean, in a very serious sort of research point of view uh, perspective, you'll see that there wasn't something like monolithic as a caliphate. Caliphates, uh, you know, first of all, there wasn't something specific called a caliphate. It wasn't different from other imperial dominions uh, in, in, at the same time, whether they were in Asia or Europe or elsewhere, uh, the caliphate was sort of the Muslim version of, of an imperial large power, projecting power over across continents, or at least trying to. Some were more successful like the Ottomans. Others, like the Fatimids, were, did not go beyond North Africa and you know, parts of the Levant and, and, and the you know, parts of uh, the Arabian Peninsula. So I think that that needs to be clear. Now, what, what is happening um, is that national states, uh, you know, Muslims are divided along denominational lines. Muslims are divided along ethnic lines. Uh, I mean, this isn't good or bad. This is what it is. It is the reality. This is the human condition. No one can escape from that. So, the, uh, so yes, there is a basic you know, commonality of what is a Muslim. And, you know, one of the problems of those who want to call the caliphate is that they have a very narrow interpretation of what constitutes a Muslim. And there are not a whole lot of people that fit the bill for those guys. So that is one of the reasons why the caliphate uh, project uh, did not take off under ISIS. And that is one of the reasons why, you know, great powers. So let's just take a look at the, the core of the Muslim world. You have, uh, there are, I would say three Muslim powers of very different strengths um, in the Middle East. So there is Turkey, there is Iran, there is Saudi Arabia. They all have their strengths and weaknesses, uh, but those are the, by and large the three major powers out there that are competing for leadership. So, and they're all doing it in very national ways. Uh, yes, they use you know the Islamist card or the pan-Islamic identity to promote themselves. So for example, the Saudis, um, you know, because they are the custodians of the two holy mosques of Islam in Mecca and Medina, they are, uh, they see themselves as the leaders of the Islamic faith, defenders of the faith. Um, President Erdogan and, and his 
cohort, his 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 uh, his party, or now what I call the Erdogan regime, um, has similar claims. They 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 see themselves as heir to glorious, uh, you know, Turkic uh, history, you know, what they deem glorious, uh, and um, they want to be able to carry forward that tradition. And um, they want to be the ones of to be looked upon as the defenders of the faith. Um, Iran builds itself as an Islamic republic as its limitations. So, uh, you know, it's they're sectarian and then they're Persian. Most of the region is Arab. So these are realities that none of these powers can cir- circumvent. Um, Saudi Arabia has a lot of financial muscle, uh, but it does, it's not a military power. It's not, it does not have a political model to export. It does not have a, a, a you know, deep economic base uh, that will um, essentially uh, propel itself, uh, pro- help it propel itself into some form of power projection capability. Uh, it has very little to offer. It's going through a very difficult internal uh, transformation uh, and at a very critical time. Turkey has its own challenges. So I think that, you know, uh, and Turkey and Iran are sort of caught in a stalemate in Syria. Um, Turkey, for Turkey to expand its influence just in Syria, um, Iran has to be pushed aside. And somewhere in there are the Russians, and they have their complicated relationship with Turkey. So this is the reality at, at this point in time of at the core of the Muslim world. So I really don't see any power coming up and having, you know, being able to have sort of like a uh, a grand ambitious plan to resurrect the caliphate. Um, Turkey, I, I think, will become a power based on its reality. Uh, Iran will remain a power. I don't see the Saudis uh, having uh, a very long shelf life unless the Saudi, you know, what we now call Saudi Arabia, tr- successfully transforms itself into something far more sustainable as a political economic project. Um, meanwhile, the other parts of the world, I mean, there's Pakistan nearby. It's, an, it's the only nuclear-powered m- Muslim state. Uh, but it's 212 million and counting. That's the number of people. And it's, you know, its GDP is so weak. Um, and, you know, there's just so much inertia there uh, that even if you somehow uh, became a, a, an economic engine in some shape or form with the Chinese pouring money in and, and you're still, there's so much inward looking. Um, you go beyond that, you know, uh, people talk about Malaysia, but Malaysia has its own complications um, between personality conflicts and the three ethnic groups uh, or, com- or identity groups that are, uh, you know, that come and share power in the Malaysian polity, being the Chinese and the Malay Muslims and uh, the, the Ind- uh, people of Indian origin or Hindu origin. And so... Uh, I don't see a Muslim power emerging uh, in our lifetime. It's kind of ironic, though, Cameron, the way you're talking about it, because 
Islam as a political force, it doesn't it doesn't originate and it doesn't come from a top-down decision by a major power in the region. It, like the other monotheisms, is a grassroots phenomenon. It comes from a prophet Muhammad who is in the middle of the desert, who has this vision of, of what society needs to look like, a more just version of society or profitable or powerful, whatever word you want to put in there. And his ideas touch some kind of nerve and it sets off this whole, it changes everything. That's not to say that geopolitical competition doesn't happen after Muhammad. Obviously it does, um, but it changes everything. And in that sense, Islam assimilates so many of these things across the world. You can say the same thing for Christianity. It starts with you know, some radical Pharisee in the middle of Roman Palestine and grows eventually to be a world dominant religion that affects ideas all over the place. It's even true of Judaism. It starts with Abraham, who is a nothing, who is not any kind of political power, but the ideas somehow touch this nerve and they spread out from beyond that. I say that to say that the idea that it would emerge from a top-down structure that a turkey would conquer its rivals or become the strongest one next to its rivals and then assert itself that's actually really not the model of what muslim political power looks like muslim political power really begins at a more grassroots level and it is able to rope in really diverse parts of a global population around a singular idea about what justice is and what righteousness is and what it means to live in the world that way whereas the things that you're talking about, political competition from the top, doesn't really work that way. I think one of the best examples for this, and, and this is to your point about the fact that there just isn't a lot of quote-unquote Muslim unity in the world, is that look at what China is doing to the Muslim Uyghurs in its own country, and look at the way that Muslim countries, even like Turkey, even like Saudi Arabia, even like Iran, are lining up to have nice political relations with China. They are really dealing with China from a political, from a secular, from a strategic point of view. If they were operating at it from a Muslim point of view, they would have huge problems with what China is doing. China is basically trying to eliminate an entire ethnic Muslim category within its own within its own borders. Um, I also, just as you're talking, I mean, it, it made me want to ask you sort of the difference between Christianity and Islam around the 20th century, because um, you know there was a caliph in what was then, I mean, it was the very early stages of Turkey, and Turkey felt like it needed to get rid of it, that having a caliph was going to block the actual emergence of a secular Turkish Republic, and that there was something bad about Islam, that it had held the Ottoman Empire back, that it had sowed the seeds of it, of it coming apart. Whereas in Europe, I mean, certainly the papacy is not the political power that, it's, that it once was, but nobody ever wanted to get rid of the Pope. Nobody decided that in order for political development to happen in the Catholic world, that the Pope had to go. The Pope was given its, you know, uh, or the, the office of the papacy was given its due influence and given its respect, and it wasn't allowed to project political power the way it was before, but it was still allowed to exist. And it still functions alongside Western politics as a, as a weird sort of religious, quasi-religious political organization. So I just threw three different questions at you and we'll see if you see, pick which one you want to respond to, or just how do you respond to that, that little dartboard of, of questions? So I think that um, if you look at, um, you know, history, Islam emerged, um, Christianity in its own time emerged, Judaism emerged. Um, but I think that what, Im what made them emerge and, and become uh, you know, global phenomenon is not pushing uh, the religion per se, if you will. 
as much as there there was definitely that there was definitely religious proselytization especially in terms of christianity and uh even you know I islam uh not so much i i think you know and i don't know much about jewish history so i won't make that claim about judaism you can probably enlighten us more than uh myself um i think that that it, that's one thing but then if you look at how fragmentation takes place very early on uh if you look at the history of islam uh you know within a hundred years uh of of the time of the prophet muhammad uh we have you know multiple polities uh we and they're all based on geography they're all based on the fact that centralized power can only project so far and and so to, you can sum all of that up. You can aggregate it and say, well, the Abbasids and you know the uh, Caliphate in the Iberian Peninsula and the Fatimid Caliphate in in North Africa and and, and parts of Levant and, and Arabian Peninsula, they were you know all that's all Muslim power. And then you can go and stretch it into Central Asia, the Turkic uh, you know Sultanates and Emirates, and you can move on into what are what is now called former Soviet Union. Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, but that's sort of like generalizing. Uh, there's a vast history on how that happened. And um, they, it wasn't, Islam wasn't sort of, Islam was, you know, definitely a driving force at the social level, at an identity level. But for example, um, the, the Ottoman Empire uh, always referred to it as you know, the, the Ottoman Empire. I mean, the word Ottoman Empire is used for a particular reason. It's not called the Ottoman Caliphate because Caliphate was a title that the Ottomans took uh, 200 years after their founding. They were founded in uh, the late 13th or early 14th century. And it wasn't until the early uh, quarter of the 16th century that they took over the Middle East and took from the Mamluks the title of the caliphate. They never used it. They always called themselves a sultan. They never used that as an institutional framework. There was nothing in their institutional uh, setup that made them say, okay, we are a caliphate and, and this is how we're a caliphate and this is how we're different from other Muslim powers and then, of course, other powers beyond the realm of Islam. Uh, sure, but isn't, isn't it also fair to say, though, like, sure, that they didn't organize themselves that way. There was the Sultanate, but then there was also the Caliphate, and these two things coexisted next to each other, and both of them reinforced Ottoman power. Like, that, they definitely used the fact that there was a Caliph in the Ottoman Empire to assert leadership in the Muslim world. Is that not the case? Well, to an extent, to the extent that they could project that. So the Ottomans, along with, you know, the great... Uh, Marshall Hodgson, uh, who wrote The Venture of Islam, the three-volume seminal work on the history of Islam, uh, you know, he talks about the, the three gunpowder empires. He talks about the Ottomans, the Safavids, the Persian Empire in the, founded in the 16th century, and then the, uh, the rulers, the, uh, the Mughal Empire, rulers of India prior to the British takeover of, of uh, the subcontinent. And so they existed, but they never, you know, the caliphate wasn't a question for them. Uh, they said, okay, they claim caliphate. What can we do about it? Where Safavids I mean, had more of a beef with the Ottomans because they were on their borders. It wasn't because they, 
they said, well, we want the caliphate. Well, they said, there's nothing called the caliphate because we're Shia, we don't have a caliphate. Uh, for the Mughals, who were fellow Sunnis and ruled a far bigger area than the Safavids, they were just geographically dislocated uh, you know, and, and separate from the Ottoman realm. Although, you know, the, there is a strong evidence that the Ottomans and the uh, the forefathers of the Ottomans and the Mughals were were uh, at least cousins of one another from Central Asia. They both came out of Central Asia. So the point that I'm trying to make is that religion, uh, I think, has been overplayed historically uh, in the sense that, uh, in a political sense, in, in, in a very political sense, not in the sense of social uh, civil society, what we call civil society now, or in a societal manner, or uh, that religion was a great part of nations in the pre-modern era. That I will give you, and 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 Islam was, you know, very important and significant uh, in 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 its physical manifestations uh, in society, and how you know maybe the courts how they ran, but you know how you're running your economy, um, you know how you're keeping up with technological changes, how you are organizing yourselves along you know, political lines. Uh, the Ottomans invented the Miliet system because they knew they were a multi-confessional, multi-ethnic empire. You couldn't just sort of slap Islam on everybody and you know, run with that. They, they had to cater to differences. They, you know, they ruled over a large Slavic population. They ruled over a large population that wasn't just Slavic, but was Christian as well, uh, which was the you know ideological or religious other at the time, considering the the, the overhang of the Crusades, uh, and so in that history. So, I think that you know that that notion of religion in politics uh, is much more complex. I mean, I think we, you know, I'm beginning to now understand it because I'm a geek. I look into this stuff. I read a lot about it. I think a lot about it. I am beginning to think that you know people in the modern age uh, have a you know the view of what was is really clouded by how we see religion today. And uh, you know, and I see this amongst Muslims. I say, and I say this to fellow Muslims. I say, look. Um, our forefathers were far more okay with with you know delving into reason, and they looked at even revelation in the context of reason. Reason was elevated, even regardless of what school of thought you came from. You could have been a conservative, very conservative school of religious school of thought, or you could have been more uh, liberal, for lack of a better term. But you still realize that there are certain things that you just don't have to go back to the Quran or the Hadith for. Uh, it was there was an entire term called the permissible. Uh, it's called mubah in Arabic. It's an entire category of human actions, in which is based on the idea that God has nothing to say about this. He has left it to you to decide which way you want to go. It's a matter of human agency and choice. And modern Muslims uh, are facing a situation because of their history, uh, emerging out of colonialism, emerging out of. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the lack of sovereignty and, and weakness and, and, and uh, religious revivalism, uh, there is, we're still sort of grappling with, you know, okay, how much can I use my mind to talk about things or do I really, really need to look at it from, you know, the point of view of religious texts? 
Yeah, I, I think I, I, you're right, and I agree with you on, on a lot of what you said. I think you're underplaying a little bit just what a what a strong and charismatic political Islam was from the very beginning, from Muhammad himself. Because I mean, when you look at the civilizations that Islam assimilated, or you could also say those civilizations assimilated Islam, it's kind of a chicken and egg scenario. It's remarkable how far Islam spread. I mean, they, they go into the Iranian, you know, the Iranians have their own religion, their own culture, their own everything, and they infuse Islam with, with all of that, but they also become Muslim. And, and this, you can, you can kind of go through all the civilizations that Muslim, that, excuse me, that all the civilizations that Islam runs through, and it changes things. And it absolutely does change the way um, politics can work. It absolutely does change the way economics can work. We're seeing this now with, you know, how Turkey, for instance, is pro- approaching monetary policy and how you deal with interest rates and all these other things. There are definitely ways in which an Islamic worldview is, is affecting the way that people are going to behave politically. The thing I agree with mo- the the thing I agree with you that you said most about is sort of the danger of golden age thinking, um, and this is not specific to Islam. This is you know in, in any political context. As soon as you have a situation which in the present people are dissatisfied, and yet they are getting some kind of comfort from an imagining of some golden age in the past, which usually includes you know some kind of element of foreign conquest or foreign power or we were so powerful then why can't we be powerful again that is a very volatile and potentially destructive political mix and i think it's one of the reasons that yes the islamic state was a fringe group but they were tapping in to what to like what you said that that nostalgia for a thing that maybe didn't even really exist but it's present um, in even a moderate Muslim's mind about, you know, the times when in Europe they were burning witches at the stake. Islam is the most advanced civilization in the world. They're inventing algebra. They're doing things that the Europeans couldn't even imagine of. And then there's this weird sort of flip. Um, saying all that to say, I'll throw another curveball question at you, which is one of the trends I'm sort of tracking in general, and I'm sure you guys are doing this at CGP2, is the... Uh, it's the recession of globalization, for lack of a better term. We sort of reached the high mark of the moment of this cycle of globalization, and I think we're pulling back from it a little bit. And that's what that, you know, you see the United States and China decoupling. You're seeing supply chains morph all over the place, and regional regionalization is becoming more important. Um, I wanted to ask you, what does that look like from the Muslim world's point of view? Or maybe that's not even the right question from different Muslim countries' point of view. Um, globalization is almost sort of anathema to the idea of Islam because Islam has its own idea of it as a globally significant truth, that there isn't a lot of space for um, you know, an ideology that is not Islam to ig- exist alongside it. I think that's fair. And I think this goes back to my, my question about, quote unquote, the caliphate. The, the question there is really, do you think that Islam as a category of identity is something that might create I don't know, a sphere of influence or relationships between countries because they share that worldview in common? Or do you think the current level of fracture that we see in the Muslim world, where not only is there no unity, everybody is fighting each other and everybody is vying for political influence you know, in the broader world, is that just going to, is it going to continue that way for the next 20, 30 years? Or could we see a snap back to where, it, where there's a reaction where it says, you know what, nationalism failed the Muslim world. Globalization failed the Muslim world. Uh, we're still, de- like you said, we're still dealing with colonization and all the things that the Western world did to us. Why don't we turn back to the thing that was good for us in the past when we were calling the shots? 
Oh, of course. Look, I mean, those trends exist. They're powerful trends. Uh, but while they're powerful, and tr- when I say powerful, I, sh- I think I should use the word popular. Uh, they're very popular. They're they're very romantic. They're, they, they, there is a deep attraction to that, okay, you know, how can we go back to our roots? And maybe that's the way forward is to go back and, and see how our uh, ancestors uh, you know, were, you know, were, were not just uh, standing on their own, they were actually leading the world in terms of the science and technological development and so on and so forth. That's definitely there. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. But what I'm saying is that I don't see the building blocks. It's an aspiration, but I don't see any serious attempt to do that because the fragmentation is overpowering everything else. Um, but to, if I were to sort of imagine, you know, if you, you have me thinking here, and I guess you're forcing me to think. <laughs> so I, I That's the goal. I would, that, for you and for all the listeners, we're trying to think out here. <laughs> great. So I think that to respond to your question, and this is sort of like a, an idea that I haven't I have thought about, but I, I guess not enough, is that I look at how Europe fought each other uh, for a long time. And then today, or at least since the end of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, uh, since the early 1990s, we have the European Union. That hasn't, that's not the United States where you're talking about a single sovereign nation. Uh, You're actually looking at different national entities retaining their sovereignty, but also, uh, you know, engaged in collective geopolitical action, for lack of a better term. And, and coming to and saying, okay, can we have a common currency? Uh, there are certain things about us that make us together. Why, why did the EU emerge in the first place? Because there was a European identity, if you will, uh, that at the end of the day, whether we are Dutch or French or Italian or English uh, or German uh, and, and, or so on and so forth, we're still, we, we, we come from a, 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 we share a history where we're from a common historical, uh, again, geographic landmass that gives us a lot of commonality. And so they arrived at the European Union. Um, I think we can see, we can expect, it's reasonable to expect something similar, uh, you know, in the future, in the distant future, uh, between different Muslim nation states coming together and saying, uh, can we, and there could be multiple such unions. Uh, Again, it'll be I think it will be more geographic than identity based, but yes, they'll be based on the identity that we're all Muslims. So, uh, I mean, already there is this, uh, we are, we have the organization of Islamic cooperation that's been there since the seventies, but it's ineffective. Uh, there's the Arab league. It's ineffective. Uh, but these aren't, this isn't what I have in mind in terms of architecture. Uh, what I, what I'm, what I'm thinking about is, the European Union, that architecture, where there's more substantive. It's not just, hey, we're Muslim, you're Muslim. You know, what are you doing in November? Uh, so can we all get together every November? I'm just throwing November out there. I don't know. I don't remember exactly when they meet for their annual conference. But it's but the point that I'm making is there's not much that they're hanging uh, on. You know, there it's just the Muslim commonality. Can we come together and discuss certain things? Okay, what are the issues in this annual meeting? And there's a summit meeting, or you can't the king can't come or the president can't come, the prime minister can't come, they'll send a deputy or a foreign minister or whatever. But that's about it. There isn't sort of collective action. But I think that we can get to that collective action 
And there seems to be something interesting happening, uh, although I think it's still very, very embryonic. Uh, I don't know if you, Jacob, if you followed, there's been some three-way communication between Turkey, Pakistan, and Malaysia, and especially when, you know, the change of government in Malaysia, when, uh, you know, former prime minister and who's now 93 years old, uh, and Mohammed Mahathir, although he's no longer prime minister, he lost office once again a few months ago. Um, when he came into power and with Anwar Ibrahim, uh, who was Mahathir's rival, uh, but also, you know, worked with him in the 90s in, 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 at the government at the time, this there is a sense of, okay, can we have something pan-Islamic here? Can we move beyond the OIC? Can we start small? Let's just the three of us, you know, come together and can we help each other out, uh, you know, and, and, and lead to substantive development, substantive economic development? Can we, can we improve the lot of our people? So there is that conversation happening. But then as soon as that happening, you see the Saudis come in and sort of call up the Pakistanis and saying, uh, you know, you do remember that we, you know, are your allies and so you can't forget us. And so why are you so close to Turkey? You know, Turkey uh, is seen as a malign force in the Arab world. And so then Pakistan is caught saying, you know, okay, you know, do I go to the meeting or not? How far can I go? Um, and so I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is there's so many arresters. There's so many things that arrest any movement towards that sort of collective pan-Islamic effort in a substantive way beyond what we've seen in the OIC and the Arab League um, and, and, you know, add GCC to that. You know, I bring up GCC because it's only six countries and they have a lot more in common. They're all Arab. They're all, you know, in the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf. Uh, they're all oil-based economies. Uh, they're, they're on the same peninsula. There are common tribal linkages between them. Uh, yes, Oman is neither Sunni and Shia, it's Ibadi, and that puts them sort of as a statistical outlier. But nonetheless, it's a, a small experiment at, uh, you know, collective action uh, by Muslim states, or at least a small group of them. And they, had a they have a lot of money at their disposal if they wanted to do something. But we've seen that the GCC is ineffective because, as you know, uh, Qatar you know, wanted to have its own foreign policy, and hence the Saudi-Qatari war that still continues, kind of like a Cold War. Um, and then, you know, Kuwait is in the GCC and not the, inside the GCC. Bahrain is so dependent on Saudi Arabia, it really has no say. UAE, you know, some would argue, uh, is, you know, um, you know, neck and neck with Saudi Arabia, in fact, influencing Saudi Arabia under the current crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, also known as MBS. And, you know, that's the, that's the fate of the GCC, with far more firepower in terms of money, far more things in common. So where do we go from here? So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, again, the GCC is it's the Gulf Cooperation Council. It's more of a geographic entity. There is no broader agreement about kind of what what that would mean, what, what identity that they would share in common. I'm also not surprised that when you were playing with that idea that Saudi Arabia came up as the thing that was kind of caused trouble, uh, they're always there. And I think that there were there were two there were two interesting ideas in what you were talking about. The first was this idea of the European Union as basically you know the European Caliphate, which is you know the EU version of this thing. 
Uh, and then the flip side of that, of course, is this idea of an Islamic union, where maybe the caliphate is too old, but maybe you can update you know, some of what you're seeing in terms of multilateral organizations around some kind of Islamic idea. It doesn't have to be the caliphate. There doesn't have to be a caliph. Maybe there's some kind of unifying um, force. But Kamran, I had a list of questions I wanted to ask you, and you'll just have to come back on because we didn't get to all of them. But I want to ask you one more thing before we let you get out of here. And we appreciate your time and uh, your being generous with it. But let's say it's uh, it's November. Let's assume that we're going to have a presidential election. Uh, hopefully COVID doesn't cancel any of that stuff. Um, and let's say uh, you have, I don't know, two minutes to brief the, the president of the United States on what American fo foreign policy in the Muslim world should look like in their administration. So A, I want to know what those two minutes sounds like. And B, I want to know if those two minutes change depending on whether it's a Biden administration or a Trump administration or whether you would give them both the same policy prescription. I think that because we believe that there, you know, ideology doesn't really change the policy prescription because policy prescription is derived from ground reality. So I would say that it would be the same whether it's President Biden, assuming I, I had a face-to-face -face with him, or President Trump. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that there are a few things that I would uh, I would address, and I think that they have more to do. They're, they're not really ambitious. They're, I mean, in many ways, is how do we, as the United States, um, you know, improve the situation uh, for our interests and for you know the well-being of the people in the region. I would say that uh, that there should be effort to uh, work with Turkey uh, and, and work with Turkey in a way that uh, we can basically have uh, some resolution or forward movement to the Syrian conflict. I think that's sucking up a lot of the oxygen. Uh, Turkey is home to 3 million uh, refugees, uh, the largest, it's, it's exceeded the number of refugees that Afghanistan produced when the uh, Soviets militarily intervened there. Uh, so that's a massive issue. It, it affects Europe. It affects the Middle East. It, it's affecting Turkey. It's affecting U.S.-Turkish relations. And I think that there's a need uh, for multiple reasons to come to some form of an understanding with Turkey. There has to be some give and take. It has to be serious uh, because Turkey, you know, it's, it is, sits in a location where it really links into our relations with the Russians it, it, it links into our dealings with this with the with the Middle East um, and of course the Europe the, the European continent as well so I think that Turkey would definitely be something that I would advise that the United States needs to have some form of a, a, a reset if you will with Turkey uh, and then work from there um, and that will help us deal with you know the Iranians who have uh, an, an ambition to sort of rejigger the architecture of the Middle East. So that, sh that should help us on that level as well. So there are multiple benefits for both the region and the United States into having a better relationship or a better understanding with Turkey. So that's number one. Um, and it's going to be difficult because of, you know, not just President Erdogan and what he wants, uh, even if it was not Erdogan, uh, Turkey is still, you know, is another sovereign power and they have, they don't look at things the way we uh, you know, want them to look at or what, what, the way we look at them from our vantage point. So that's one. I think that uh, the other uh, place that needs to sort of, that's very critical 
is the largest landmass in terms of uh, population. Uh, that's South Asia. Uh, between Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, uh, you're looking at the largest concentration of people on the planet. And I think that uh, Pakistan-India thing has to somehow deal, uh, or and, and of course, because we're in Afghanistan, so we have already an incentive to, to expand uh, that conversation and not just make it about Afghanistan and make it a transactional one. Uh, and, and I think that we can do this without being, you know, without looking into the military dimension. In fact, it, uh, we need to up the diplomacy uh, across the board, across the globe. And in, in South Asia, I think we'll need to work with Pakistan to uh, reduce those tensions with India, find a way to deal with, you know, Afghanistan in a realistic way. So those are sort of like, I think, the two top things. And then, um, of course, there is the issue of, uh, it's not so much a Muslim issue as it is an American issue, but it requires working with Muslim countries, and that's China. And how can we better manage relations with China uh, where there's not that volatility and in an age where globalization is, is, is now... Uh, seen as one of those fantasies of the 1990s by, by a significant number of people in the United States and across the world. So I think that we'll have to work with different Muslim partners on how we deal with China. I mean, Malaysia's there, Indonesia's there, uh, and of course, Pakistan is a key ally of the Chinese. So there has to be some form of a conversation with the Pakistanis, not just on South Asia and security in South Asia, but also with China. Uh, and then, of course, uh, my favorite subject is, is Central Asia, and I think that we need to invest, diplomatically invest far more heavily into Central Asia. Um, Russia is a waning power, as I see it right now, from Central Asia, and the Chinese are trying to fill in that vacuum. And I think there's a need to work with the five stands, uh, or at least three of them, uh, the big ones, that to, uh, to, to manage that area and to see how we can, uh, you know, how we can sort of even the uh, the or come to terms with our uh, competition with China uh, in that region. Which uh, you said that you said three of them. Which two would you leave out? I mean, I think that the two. I wouldn't leave them out per se. I would just say that they're not effective. I would say one is Tajikistan because it's kind of like a narco state. There's nothing there. Uh, if Russian troops weren't there, uh, and you know. I think that place would be falling apart even further. And we'll have to see what happens with Afghanistan uh, to, to figure out what Tajikistan is. And then Turkmenistan. I think Turkmenistan, we just don't know enough about it. I mean, I think that it's just such one of those closed places on the planet. You know, it's we know far more about North Korea than we do about Turkmenistan. Uh, I once heard a, a journalist tell me uh, in D.C. that uh, I asked him, so how much of what happens in Turkmenistan becomes news? And he said, if I had to put a number on it, it's between five to eight percent. We'd find out about five to eight percent of what happens in that country. I think we can both agree, though, that we need Gurban Guli to come to the United States and, and teach a generation of young American DJ artists how to perfect their craft. I'm I'm a little embarrassed to say that I I recently uh, got hooked on that YouTube video that was going around of Gurban Guli uh, DJing his. Turkmenistan's New Year's Eve party and the tune got stuck in my head and I was literally listening to it for hours. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is. A, he is an interesting character. And so I guess that's that's how he keeps uh, 
that's sort of, sort of how his way of keeping you know the outside focus on his country uh, away from the things that that matter. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.